0: You're listening to the On the Go with VAO News Podcast for the week ending August 28, 2015. Welcome back to our weekly recap of the top headlines from this week's Daily Acquisition News. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Bill Olver, VAO content developer and senior news writer.
1: And I'm Bill's colleague, content developer and fellow news writer, Dara Curran. Hi, everyone.
0: If you missed the last couple episodes or are just joining us for the first time, we want to make sure that you're aware our podcast can now be found on iTunes. Look either for ASI Government or the title of our podcast, On the Go with VAO. You can listen to us there directly, download the file to your computer or mobile device, and subscribe to automatically download the latest episode when it's released.
1: So, right to our headlines. Last week, GSA announced it reached an agreement with online review platform Yelp to amend the website's standard terms of service to make it available for use by federal government agencies. The agreement will allow agencies to provide basic information on the site, respond to customer reviews, and use that input to inform service improvements. Agencies can decide whether or not to set up a Yelp page, and GSA is working on a best practices guide to help them use the service if they choose. GSA is also testing two products on its new Advantage Select program, which offers pre-competed items for purchase by all federal agencies. GSA is offering 22-inch monitors this month and plans to introduce 14-inch laptops in September. This sounds like they're going to be coming up with some sort of doorbuster special for Black Friday. (laughs) Um, Okay, sorry. Because the agency has competed the items up front, purchase card holders and contracting officers need only enter the desired quantity and then proceed right to
0: checkout. The Defense Information Systems Agency has released a new best practices guide to help defense components select and manage cloud computing services. The guidance is not official DOD or DISA policy, but is a collection of knowledge and experiences gained from pilot projects within the defense community. The guide is intended as a resource for anyone planning to migrate information systems to the cloud. Among other topics, the guide covers IP standards, storage recommendations, data backups, and how to ensure high availability of systems and applications. The Air Force has awarded 13 large and nine small businesses spots on its IDIQ for Agile Development Services. The five-year contract is valued at up to $490 million and will provide for pre-programmed technology development, engineering and manufacturing, and production activities for both development of new systems and the modification of existing ones. Also in contracting news, the Army has awarded Oshkosh Defense a firm fixed-price contract with options for production of its Joint Light Tactical Vehicle. The initial $6.7 billion contract will cover production of the first 16,901 JLTVs, but the Army and Marine Corps together plan to buy nearly 55,000 of the vehicles at a total cost of approximately $30 billion. The Army and Marine Corps expect to start deploying the vehicles in 2018.
1: Oh, that's exciting. That's been in the works for a long time, so cool.
0: Very long time.
1: Yes. The Department of Energy has revised DOE Acquisition Guide Chapter 15.2, Unsolicited Proposals, to update the link to guidance on the preparation and evaluation of unsolicited proposals and the associated point of contact at the National Energy Technology Laboratory, which coordinates the receipt and evaluation of all such items. DOE also issued a new acquisition letter implementing subcontract reporting capabilities in management and operating, or M&O, contracts. Through this capability, DOE will be able to collect data about M&O subcontracts with small businesses so that the department can track progress against its annual small business contracting goals. The acquisition letter provides background and guidance and includes a clause that must be incorporated in all M&O contracts, which mandates the submission of subcontract data. The clause must be incorporated where appropriate by October 1st, since the initial reporting for fiscal 2015 will be due on the 1st of December. For that initial reporting, all MNO contractors are required to submit data for their 20 highest-dollar-value first-tier small business subcontract transactions.
0: And we had a fair bit of regulatory activity this week. NASA published an interim rule raising its capitalization threshold from $100,000 to $500,000. In accordance with federal financial accounting standards, agency must record certain items, such as property or equipment with a useful life of two years or more, as assets. Agencies are allowed to establish their own dollar thresholds for recording these items, and NASA recently reviewed those thresholds and decided they should be higher. This increase is expected to benefit contractors by reducing the administrative burden of reporting on agency property in their custody. Comments on this interim rule must be submitted by October 26th. Uh, DOD published a lot of new rules this week, six of them, five final rules and one interim rule, all of which are effective August 26th. First up, the interim rule implements statutory requirements for contractors and subcontractors to report cyber incidents that result in either an actual or potential breach of one of their information systems or an actual or potential exposure of DOD information residing on that system. This interim rule also implements DoD policy on contracting for cloud computing services as documented in the Cloud Computing Security Requirements Guide and in December 2014 guidance from the DoD CIO. Comments on this interim rule must be submitted by October 26, 2015. And we also had five final rules. The DFARS now prohibits funds appropriated in fiscal year 2014 or 2015 from being used to purchase or manufacture a U.S. flag unless the flag is treated as a covered item under the Berry Amendment, which means it must be purchased or manufactured in the U.S. DOD also amended the DFARS to require offers bidding on DOD military construction contracts to provide opportunity for competition to U.S. steel producers, fabricators, and manufacturers, and establish a preference for award to U.S. firms for certain military construction and architect-engineer contracts to be performed in countries bordering the Arabian Gulf. DOD also issued three final rules that made some editorial changes and clarified requirements and clauses affecting contractor personnel supporting military forces deployed overseas to clauses used in solicitations and contracts that include the furnishing of supplies and for services involving the furnishing of supplies, and to clauses related to interagency acquisitions and contract and delivery orders issued by a non-DOD agency. And again, those were mostly editorial in nature.
1: Whew, busy beavers. Well, that's a lot. It is. So, uh, discussion this week. I uh, noticed one of life's little ironies here. Right after last week's podcast, where we trumpeted the happy news that the Congressional Budget Office had found fiscal 2015 spending fell below the caps imposed by the Budget Control Act, thus hopefully preventing any offsets from being required in fiscal 2016, wouldn't you know, the very next Business Day found us covering the news that 2016 House appropriation bills would overshoot those financial limits and trigger almost $2 billion in sequestration cuts for non-defense spending. Uh, Wah, wah. So... (laughs) Not only that, but the scuttlebutt coming out of Congress is that lawmakers are potentially considering taking up a one-year continuing resolution instead of just the normal six-month funding span.
0: Yeah, that's that's a real treat. Uh, you know, you, we're used to these—you know, two weeks, two days. You know, one year, what six months? Like you said, uh, that's no one wants that. Uh, uh, sure. Yeah, DoD officials weighed in this week, uh, you know, and last week talking about. You're cautioning about a year long CR uh, you know it impedes planning and it can prevent the rollout of new programs and uh, you know especially we're talking this might be a full year continuing resolution that could lead to significant deferrals um, on important projects it can trigger a domino effect across multiple years um, you know with award decisions delayed production decisions delayed and you know that's price increases right there which, oh, yes. you know any time this anytime this kind of disruption happens you know There goes the price, Uh, you know, but and unfortunately, we also have not seen any any lifting of reprogramming restrictions, you know, that would at least allow agencies to move funding around. I mean, some agencies have, you know, some limited authority and they can go to OMB and, you know, traditionally, you know, historically, DOD has a lot more. Oomph, there, you know, with Congress and and with OMB as far as being able to move money around, but even that's limited. I mean, you're not talking, you're talking percents here and there. You're not talking big dollars.
1: Oh yeah, and when VA had to go to them, what was like two months ago or whatever, and they were like, oh, you know, we need to move some money, and Congress. all this finger-shaking, like, you guys are so irresponsible, and I was just so chafed. I was like, who is really irresponsible (laughs) here? Oh, my gosh. They are really... Congress is going totally in the opposite direction for what would make sense for agency efficiency and the best use of funding dollars. Now, in the past, I have seen some very persuasive articles arguing for moving appropriations bills, the real ones, from annual to biennial. Under a two-year funding span, everybody would have a lot longer to make progress on advancing their missions with a nice, steady flow of money. Instead of having to shift things around in the middle when the political winds change suddenly and funding dries up for this or that, you know, when when their CR is in effect and they have these little tiny deadlines going on.
0: Yeah, yeah, I do do like the, the concept of doing biennial uh, budgeting. I, I I know there's arguments against it, but it, it certainly just from a gut standpoint seems to make sense to me. And, you know, and it's also time consuming, right? I mean, a biennial budget would certainly cut down the time spent putting the budget together. Um, you know, there's all this dithering every fiscal year about funding and, yeah. you know, that would automatically slim that down, um, you know, allow other areas to get done. I mean, they, they've talked about having budgeting one year and, Oversight, you know, more 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 oversight work done in the second year, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and let's face it, Congress isn't getting their work done now on time.
1: Exactly, (laughs) yes, right. When when we get the oh, all appropriation bills are done. I said no one in recent memory. (laughs) So anyway, there's there's plenty of hand-wringing to go around, and that could be done here, but actually, was not my point. What I did want to make note of was, I saw one of our articles this week. It was totally focused on a completely different area than these budget woes, but it caught my eye because some of the things that were pointed out, I thought they had potentially useful takeaways for coping with funding uncertainty, even though that wasn't really the intent. Now, specifically, this was a commentary aimed at IT managers and how they can start planning for uh, the upcoming change in the administration. So the main thread was about structuring for adaptation.
0: Yes, yes, that was one of mine. And mm-hmm. that, that is interesting. I see where you're going with that. You know, one of the strategies that it touched on was looking at how fast you're delivering capabilities and how you're building in flexibility, which is what we talk about all the time with agile development. Yep. And, you know, so we we already have and continue to see discussion about that, Um you know, but these ideas are certainly applicable elsewhere beyond just IT.
1: Definitely, because you know, if you can break a program down into smaller, you know, sprints or whatever, you're going to be able to react in a more considered way to those fluctuations in your budget. Now, obviously, this is not something that everybody can put into
0: place. Right, right. You know, your big weapon systems. Right. You know, you, you can't just you know th- those are multi-year efforts. They're multi-decade efforts. You know, you can't just go and say hey, we're just going to buy one engine. Right. <laughs> you know, can we just get one joint strike fighter. Get back to you, know, you can't. You know, you can't delay that kind of stuff. And those, and the, some of those obviously do have built-in multi-year funding, which is good. Um, you know, but yes, if, if projects can be broken down.
1: Yeah, in the course of normal business, it's not always building, you know, trillion-dollar airplanes. Contracting professionals do have plenty of opportunities where they could at least stop and ask themselves, hey, can we break this down a little further?
0: And, uh, yeah, the article also talked about senior role as, as more adaptive, undertaking targeted activities that fill a need. Now, granted, this might not grand be the ideal way of meeting your agency's mission, but I think it can be a valuable perspective shift, uh, You're keeping your eyes open for quick wins and being ready to change course more rapidly.
1: Right, right. And, you know, this was interesting. The final aspect it touched on was the human factor. It's not always something we, you know, think about with I don't know, how to cope with funding problems, but... It talked about building a team that's well-rounded in terms of functionality, which will, in turn, make it more easily adaptive to new and changing parameters. Another thing about the team is that, you know, working in a collaborative fashion, I think that many minds being involved in helping to guide, you know, whatever project or program it is that's underway is automatically going to make it more resilient if there's changes in how much can be spent or timelines or even the target outcomes, the emphasis on collaboration that we're seeing, it it, it kind of seems like a trending topic to me, honestly. There's certainly a lot of that coming to the forefront as Futara is being rolled out, all the stuff about giving CIOs a seat at the table. But early and continuous stakeholder involvement, that has always been a best practice, starting right off from requirements development. and. I think it'll really continue to be a key practice because you want everyone at the table to help guide the program when adjustments are necessary and you need to react in an adaptive manner. You want that collective brain to help with trade off decisions or throw up a caution flag when a decision is being made. It could have not so desirable ramifications down the road and also bringing that creative problem solving to the matter at hand. So, dare I say, this could actually be a small silver lining to the overall dark cloud of funding uncertainty and inconsistently instead of yeah, the high dollar somewhat plodding and monolithic acquisition programs we think of from, you know, historically the days of yore, you have these small groups now hopefully made up of folks with complementary but separate areas of expertise. Everybody's bringing their collective problem solving to think their way around challenges and keep delivering needed products and services no matter what kind of roadblocks Congress tosses in the road. Okay, that's enough, Sally. Sunshining for today. <laughs> <That whole time. laughs> yeah, I actually
0: have one. No, I actually have one more thing to throw yeah. in. Because you, when you mentioned, you just you, you're talking about, you know, stakeholder involvement for Terra and, and rolling that out. There was actually another good interview this week. You might not have caught it. It was just in, in uh, Thursday's news um, with Coast Guard Chief Acquisition Officer. Um, I'm going to am going to mangle his name. But he's Rear Admiral Joe Vodovich, uh, and uh, he talked about. How the Coast Guard is uh, overhauling its requirements process and improving its requirements development um, by involving more stakeholders early on, you know, everything from IT to even HR, um, you know, and just bringing everybody in and their product, their programs are, are rolling out better and they're staying on time and they're staying on schedule and they're bringing industry in and asking industry what, you know, what do we need in the next five years? But, you know, so so that uh, that stakeholder involvement definitely is something that a lot of agencies are learning is a good thing.
1: That's really cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, everybody's learned their lessons in various areas and stuff. I mean, it's still it's a single organization, even though it's different departments. You know, I, I, removal of stove piping, I think, is always a good thing. So that that's really cool. I'll definitely check that interview out. I haven't
0: read that one yet. So. Yeah, it was a good one. It's good. And that's all we have then. I guess we'll take off. If you're a government agency subscriber to ASI's suite of acquisition publications, you can find links to the headlines we discussed today for further reading on VAO on the same page where you downloaded this podcast. And you can also comment about the podcast or any of our topics. We'd love to have your feedback on the format or content or anything else you'd like to discuss.
1: Tune in again on September 4th,
0: oh my gosh, September's here already, oh boy,
1: (laughs) for our next weekly news recap. Thank you so much for joining us.